Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. All right, good morning, church. How we doing? Hey guys, my name is David. I'm excited to open up God's word with you guys this morning. I'm one of the pastors here. And I wanna say a special welcome to those joining us online. Thank you every week for inviting us into your family room. I was just talking with a couple this last week. They've been online for over a year and a half. And I said, how's that going for you? And they said, it's going well. We miss gathering with people. We'll be back. But they said, you know, it's really cool how God's used it. They said, uh, ordinarily, our adult daughter would never come to church with us, but she would listen to it in our family room because we put good coffee on. And, and they said, uh, this year, their daughter accepted Christ right there in their living room. And so... Uh, we know that God is working in family rooms. We miss you. We invite you back, but we know that God is working. Hey, if today is your first Sunday, or maybe you've been new in the last few weeks, I do hope you'll join us for lunch right after this service. It's going to be less than a one-hour kind of moment for you to get to know us and us to get to know you. We know it's hard to be new in such a large place, and so we invite you to that. And to those of you gathered here right now, to this congregation, are you guys ready? Are we feeling ready? Say Ready? All right, that's what I like to hear right now. I'm ready too. Hey, last week, Jonathan broke the seal on the whole new book, 1 Corinthians. We're gonna be unpacking that for several weeks. And he gave us uh, this incredible kind of overview, landscape picture of the direction that Paul is writing, a challenging letter to a church that isn't doing so hot. This week, we're gonna zoom in on chapters one through four, and we're gonna look at this topic, this challenge of unity. Can you imagine with me for a moment, Paul penning this letter? It's not like a text message where you can just kind of backspace, get, get someone else's feedback, redo it a few times. He's penning this letter because people had come to him in a different location complaining about the church in Corinth. And so I'm just gonna read an excerpt from his letter. In fact, we'll put it here on the screen. As he jumps into it, Paul says this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. That's a tall order. And that there be no divisions, order got taller, among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He goes on to say this in verse 11, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. Uh, how many of you would say you've got a quarrel going with somebody in this season right now? Come on, just, just a little bit of church honesty right now. If you're online, you can just raise your hand too. Okay, they were a little bit of weeks. Lots of hands got raised in their hearts, but not a lot in, in person here. How many of you would say, um, you would say unity has been a struggle of, quote, an increasing struggle of our culture in the last year or two? Would you say that? A little easier to raise our hands, but not me. Of course, not me. Uh, how many of you would say, and you don't have to raise your hands, but... Is your life one that maybe sows seeds of increasing unity? Or maybe your propensity, if you were to be honest with yourselves, somehow, not your intent, but sows seeds of disunity amongst those that God has surrounded you with? Kind of a, a hard question for us to enter into. So with that said, with the grenade out, let's pray that God will bless us this morning. Lord, we do, we thank you for the chance to, to open up the word together. We thank you for the gift of, of the preservation of this letter that Paul is writing, Lord. 
in many ways to the Corinthians, but also many more ways, Lord, to, to us here today, both online and on campus in El Dorado Hills. God, we ask that you would uh, maybe challenge us in a new way. For those that have been walking with the Lord for maybe a long time, Lord, would you, as you often do, shake us up, call us to new depths. And for maybe those in the room who aren't even sure if, they, if they're feeling called to follow Jesus, they're trying to check out this whole Christianity thing, God, I pray that you would reveal a more honest picture of what it looks like to follow your son, Jesus. God, we ask your blessing over this time. And all God's people said, amen. What's the point? Okay, so Paul lays out this incredibly challenging kind of intro within his letter, calling us to this really tall order, and you're asking, like, what's the point? Now, I ask, what's the point? Every Thanksgiving and New Year's, when I'm gathered with family, uh, we get together with extended family at this cabin, and somebody always breaks out a puzzle. And I just wonder, in the back of my mind, like, what is the point of a puzzle? Right? Okay, so let's just, let's just back it up for a second. They always pick the worst location possible to do the puzzle. They put it on like the main dining room table that we want to eat at, and nobody ever finishes a puzzle in like a clean two hours, right? It's somehow out for days with a 50% likelihood of ever getting completed in general. Furthermore, I'm trying to understand what the point is. The picture is on the cover. Why are we making the picture? In fact, what is it? Like, we just buy artwork. Stop buying little pieces that make up Artwork, and then you watch as people go about it, and other family members, one person's collecting all the edges and the sides, another person's sorting by color, and then they start to argue over sorting methods, and then there's always some cowboy who just swoops in, and he just starts trying every single combination known to man. That's his strategy for completing the thousand-piece puzzle. I, I don't like to participate <laughs> until the final ending, when there's maybe 20 pieces left. I swoop in for the glory moments right there. I think we ask, what is the point of these puzzles? And when you read a challenging scripture like this, where Paul is calling us to no divisions, to a sense of unity, in the back of our minds, we're saying, what's the point? Like the church in Corinth, as Jonathan shared with us last week, was so far gone. In the back of your mind, you're saying, is that really the wind we're going for here? Unity? You gotta know this about Paul, he's one of the people who brings to us one of the most robust and richest theology in scripture, but it's all based on Jesus. He's trying to help us now unpack what it looks like to be a body of believers following this person named Jesus. It's called the church. And so to back it up, to back up his tall order, we're gonna flip to John chapter 17. It's one of Jesus's final prayers before he's going to get ready to be crucified. And in John chapter 17, I'm just going to give you an excerpt of his very long prayer. It was one of those prayers that some of your grandparents pray at dinner and the food gets cold. In verse, chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus says this, that they all, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, he's reflecting, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, Jesus, I have given to them, the world, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as 
you loved me. Jesus says that word one an awful lot in just that little excerpt that I shared with us this morning. Jesus' hope for us is that we would emulate his relationship with the Father and that we would have a oneness amongst us as believers and that the watching world would be attracted. The, The big idea, the main point today is this. The point of unity is to point to Jesus. The point of unity is not to be a cute concept. It is not just simply to be nice people who look like we got it all together on the surface. The point of the call of unity that Paul is is now commissioning towards the church in Corinth is to point to Jesus. Let me ask you this. Is there a cost? If there's a cost to promoting unity, would you pay it? If there's a cost to promoting unity, would you pay it? Could, could we afford not to pay it? Is our lives seeding movements of unity amongst us or not? Let me just give you a, a quick overview. From my perspective, disunity brings so many things I don't think we want. Disunity brings a lack of internal peace. It brings racing minds. It brings a a deterioration of relationships slowly over time. Disunity uh, stunts our own growth. Disunity brings less relationships into our lives. Disunity is a poor reflection of the gospel, of what Christ Represents, which is this desire for oneness and unity. Now, on the other hand, unity, unity tends to bring more peace. When you strive for unity, I think you will inherently experience the peace of Christ more often in your life. Striving for unity is going to increase your relational capital with those in your family, your household, your community, and the world. Striving for a sense of unity is gonna help you as a person grow in your character. Growing your perspective and growing your understanding of the world and how God created things into motion. Striving for unity is going to have less regrets. Less regrets. It's going to be God honoring, and it's going to give the watching world one of the best pictures of the gospel that we can give them. So, how do we go about this? Paul is laying out a tall order for us this morning. And so I wanna look at just two ways, two huge stepping stones that we take progress towards unity, two observations. But before we do that, I wanna give us some backstory in case you missed last week on Corinth. I think it will help us to know that Corinth uh, was a metropolitan city, that Paul is writing this letter approximately seven years after planting the church in Corinth. That's not a lot of time. That's middle school to high school. That's what's happened, just enough time to figure out what we can't do on our own. And now Paul's writing to them. The population is about 650,000 people between slaves and Roman citizens, more slaves than Roman citizens, historians would say. Banking was a big part of it. Corinth was like the major hub. Today we've found shrines to deities of the Greek, the Romans, and the Egyptians, The letter that we're reading was written around 55 AD during Paul's third missionary journey. And to give you some perspective, uh, we talked about 650,000 people. I'll show you kind of an old school picture of what it probably looked like. This is excavations in Corinth. Today, 
there's 70,000 people that live in Corinth. So it's much smaller and much more modernized. I'll show you the modern, uh, a modern snapshot of Corinth. Yeah, it looks like an amazing uh, vacation destination, actually. That's Corinth. It's a very real place. We're not just looking at made-up stories, friends. We're looking at, at real letters to real places and real people and the sprouts and the beginnings of something uh, quite beautiful. So in verse 11, we'll go to verse 11 right now. Paul said this, for it's been reported to me, never good. Uh, it's like getting home and the babysitters report something to you. You gotta tell your kids, I, it was reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Two key words I wanna unpack for a moment, brothers and quarreling. We'll start with brothers. Um, Paul begins his letter in chapter one with what I'll call the conflict cookie. All right, the conflict cookie. Um, what do I mean by that? The first several verses is him like trying to warm up the church that's gonna read his letter. It's encouraging. He's trying to be as positive as he possibly can. He's not using his positional authority as an apostle, which he could do. He's using his relational connection as a brother to appeal to them. How often do we wanna use authority versus relationship? And maybe we don't have the relationship, so we try the authority with people in our lives. I call it the conflict cookie. Many years ago, I was running a team of interns at a church, and uh, they were asking this question. They were having some conflict amongst each other. And so the question was, Dave, like, how do we have conflict? How do we share truth in love the Bible talks about? And so I jokingly made a statement. I said, okay, well, it's hard to get mad at somebody every time they, like, anytime they bring you, like, freshly baked cookies, so I said, like, next time you have a conflict with someone on the team, why don't you bake them some cookies, think long and hard about what you want to say, bring them the cookies, and say, and by the way, can we talk about X, Y, and Z? And I was just kind of said it jokingly, and for like the rest of the year, that was the joke. Hey, conflict cookie time right here. If you see someone coming at you with a cookie, you better run. <laughs> Paul is beginning his letter with a conflict cookie, with warmth and grace and relationship, and then he goes, by the way, by the way, I've heard about some quarrels, some problems that are happening. And the rest of the letter in Corinthians is Paul unpacking some of their questions and challenges that the early church is facing. And you'll often find that our quarrels reveal what we value, don't they? Would you guys agree with that? The things that cause the most strife and problems and challenges in our life reveal what we value. And the things that we value often somehow intentionally or unintentionally turn into an identity in our lives. And so the first of two points I'll give you all morning is this. Number one, check your identity. Check your identity. A little backstory before we jump in. Actually, we'll jump in and then we'll, we'll give you a little bit of backstory. We're gonna go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter three, verse one through four, be right here. Paul is now, we're skipping along in his letter and he's getting kind of straight to it. He goes, look, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready. He continues on to say this, for you are still of the flesh, meaning you're still of the world. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way, in a worldly way? He continues to say this, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Are you not merely succumbing to culture, not the gospel? A little backstory, uh, 
the city of Corinth was destroyed by the Romans in approximately uh, 1460 BC, 140, uh, 1,046 years before Christ comes on the scene, the city is destroyed, and then it's rebuilt by Caesar as a Roman colony on Greek soil around 44 BC. Since that moment, a hundred years will pass before this letter will be penned. So the city of Corinth, as it is now, as a Roman colony, will have a hundred years to form its own identity. And the identity of Corinth was that of the intellectuals. It was like the crown jewel of Rome. It was the pride. It was the metropolitan city hub. And they were known for having the best philosophers and thinkers who would come through the town and everybody would flood from their homes to listen to these thinkers. They they called them sophists at the time. It wasn't like they had Netflix. So when a sophist came to town, you left home and you came. And over time, so many brilliant thinkers were attracted to the environment that as you can imagine, these different camps kind of erupted, right? And I follow this guy and you follow that guy and no, no, our thinker's better than your thinker. It maybe is like a little bit like politicians today who take their, their whole thing, their whole political party on the road and people show up for the rallies. And so people are showing up for these, these intellectual thinkers. Well, for seven years, the church in Corinth was sprouting its roots. And what began to happen was as they're beginning to unpack the gospel and to live it out in their lives, they began unintentionally to mirror the culture around them. And so as different communicators and speakers would sprout up and teachers in different churches, they began to really put their pegs down about their camp. And then they began to try to discredit the others. And all of a sudden, the church is a pure mirror of the society around them. And they're spending their energy in arguments versus spending their energy aiming to live out the love and truth and the calling of the gospel. You see, at the heart of the conflict was a clash between the good news of Jesus and the apparent power of human wisdom and human priority. Uh, There's a word for this, because once you get in that cycle, it gets challenging. The word that maybe many of you have heard before is echo chamber. I want to describe to you what an echo chamber is. This is the definition from Wikipedia, two slides. It says this, an echo chamber refers to situations in which beliefs are amplified or reinforced by communication and repetition inside a closed system and insulated from rebuttal. Definition continues. By participating in an echo chamber, people are able to seek out information that reinforces their existing views without encountering opposing views, potentially resulting in an unintended exercise of confirmation bias. How many of you would agree that we are living in the greatest age of the echo chamber? Ooh. And the echo chamber, by default, is designed to solidify, to congratulate, to pat you on the back for the identity you didn't know as being built into you and to make it more difficult for you to relate to others and to do life with other people. Let me put it for you this way, a little chart here. Echo chamber, you're trapped in your own beliefs. And I don't think any of us like to be trapped in anything. Which then, beliefs become our identity. So it goes from beliefs, and a belief, whether you know it or not, becomes an identity. And what happens is we, we tend to defend our threatened identity. Anytime something threatens our identity, it could be a news article, it could be an article, anytime something threatens that, 
you defend it. It's a natural instinct. It's a good instinct. If a bear runs at you, you want to run. We defend it. And when we defend that identity, we cease to be participants who will defend unity and the calling that God's placed on our lives. Even in the church, we struggle with this. We struggle with our identity. And for many years, we've had identities in the kingdom of God, in the church, such as I'm, I'm a Baptist, or hey, I'm a Episcopalian, or I'm, I'm Presbyterian, or I'm Catholic. And these aren't bad things, but they're dangerous things when they become the source of our identity, the thing that we feel like we have to defend against others. And we cease to be a united body of Christ. It goes deeper than that, though. It goes from being I'm a, I'm a Baptist or I'm a Presbyterian to I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. Paul's arguing that Jesus alone is to be the, the source of our identity. Now, for the early church, this was revolutionary. What Paul is writing to them is a game changer. It's no longer Jew and Gentile. It's one. It's no longer rich or poor. It's one. It's no longer male and female. It's you're called to oneness. For the times that this was being written, it was revolutionary. It was no longer uh, survive and accumulate. It was give away your resources. This is mind-boggling information for the early church in a society such as Corinth. And I would say this, it's revolutionary again today. It's a revolutionary concept again today that even in the church, it's no longer Republican or Democrat. It's the gospel. It's no longer mask or no mask. How we feel about a vaccine or don't feel about a vaccine. It's no longer rich, poor. It's no longer our differences. It's our uniqueness that should bind us under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen, church? Amen. I, I know this. Uh, we're called to unity because of a greater identity. And that there are some here today, and maybe for a while, you have been yearning. You didn't know it, but you've been yearning for a new identity. Many of us have tried anything and everything as the source of our contentment, as the source of our joy. We've tried to place our identity in our career and being excellent at it. And maybe you've climbed that ladder and you've gotten there only to find out that does not please you. We've tried to place our identity in our children, in our role as parents. And that's a great role, but it's not the best identity. Why? Because they leave the house. We've tried to place our identity in our wealth and our comfort. And if we could just make it a little bit more comfortable and safe and secure, honey, if I can just get that new gadget, I think I'll feel good about life. And we unintentionally attach our sense of identity to so many things. Now, many of us, we're, we've given our lives to Christ and you're here online, you're here on campus, but you're still struggling with this identity. Why? Because for so long, we tend to try to stack Christ on top of a preconceived identity we didn't know was the first to market for our hearts. We didn't know it was the first thing to start to build some foundation in our lives. I remember growing up, uh, God got, on my whole, got a hold of my life when I was a youth, and um, there was a prayer I prayed um, not for salvation. I, I don't really remember. This is, maybe you can relate, the exact moment I gave my life to the Lord. 
I, I grew up in an incredible church, but I remember this season where I asked God, would you break me? It was a prayer of brokenness. I was starting to recognize the incongruencies of my desire for faith and my desire for a pursuit of Jesus and the foundation and the other priorities in my life. And so I said, Lord, would you break me? And that prayer was probably one of the more painful prayers at that stage of my life that I'd ever prayed before because why God answered that prayer and he began to quickly chisel at the foundation. It only takes a few chisels to put a crack in a foundation to then be removed. And he began to dismantle the things that I thought were priorities in my life. Why? So that my identity could be properly built as a foundation in Jesus Christ. And then we go on into the things that he calls us to, into our occupations, into your roles as parents, into your roles even in politics, right? Those things are not to be identities, they're to be things that we're called into with our identity in Jesus. Some of us have been trying to stack Jesus on top of an identity you have not taken any time to redo in your life. And I just want to say, don't, don't let these words pass by like, like a Sunday, like another Sunday, and I'll just be there next week again and just see what they got for me then. Maybe today's a moment where you need to recalibrate the foundation of your life and be willing to come to terms with maybe the priorities need some reversal in our lives. Okay, so tell me more. What is the next step toward unity? Because an identity, that's not challenging enough. The next thing is this that we need to accept is actually three simple and yet profound words. Unity is costly. Unity is costly. Now, some of us, are of the frame of mind, um, if this don't broke, don't fix it, right? But we fail to realize in our life that there are more broken things around us than maybe we've come to terms with. And the, the reality is that if we wanna be people of God who sow unity in culture, unity within the broadest kingdom of God, it's going to cost us some things. Others of us would say, hey, I love a good deal, and this just seems like it's gonna cost me too much. You ever try to like replace something on your own and you, get, you buy the part and you get knee deep in hours into it and you finally go, honey, we just gotta buy our way out of this problem and hire somebody and it's gonna be 10 times more expensive than when I started? Some of us are at that point in faith right now where we've tried to do it all on our own and the reality is it may cost you to live a life in the direction of unity. Before we look at the cost of following Jesus, though, I want to just mention one thing it may not cost you. Unity, church, is not the same as uniformity. Unity is not the same as uniformity. What do I, what do I mean by that? Uh, this puzzle right here is 1,000 unique pieces. You do not want two pieces to be the same. The puzzle would not work. You know what I'm talking about? Furthermore, we have this temptation, it would be ludicrous to say, hey, I'm pretty sure this piece goes here, it's not fitting, but if I just got some scissors out and trimmed one piece and made it fit my picture, it would be great. That's not how a puzzle works. Sometimes we're doing a puzzle and you go, look, I swear, there's 40 pieces left, this piece goes nowhere, it does not belong, it's a defective puzzle, send it back. Again, that's not how a puzzle typically works. You see, each of us, the Bible says, was uniquely and personally made in the image of Christ. Each one of us are like a piece of a thousand piece puzzle. And together, when we come together, we portray the image 
of God. This being my image of God, this is uh, Jesus' walking on water moment portrayed by our Southern California brothers and sisters. <laughs> Jesus surfs up Jesus. And for many of us, we've gotten so hung up on that we're, we look like this but not like this and we've let the way we don't look the same become a point of contention. And every time that that happens, you deteriorate the image of God. Does that make sense? Furthermore, look, some of you are like, oh, I gotta defend my denomination. I gotta defend this denomination. And you fail to realize a denomination, there's nothing wrong with church denominations so long as we don't think it's the only way. So long as it doesn't shut us down from listening to the other uh, collection of believers throughout the world. A denomination is simply like a section of a photo or maybe we share some, some more commonalities, but together we have to realize we make up the largest mosaic that should point a watching world to the person of Jesus. Some of you have excluded yourself from this puzzle. Some of you at one point had someone say something kind of harsh to you. It was maybe another believer, we call that friendly fire. They didn't know what they were doing and it's made it difficult for you to feel accepted in a church body. It's made it difficult for you to want to join into another small group because you had a bad experience at one where, where someone just tried to make you look like the exact same piece as them. And like, I'll just say this. This is a, an imperfect puzzle filled with sinners. We've gotten it wrong. We're going to continue to get it wrong. But if we just accept that, I think we can portray a beautiful picture of the grace and love of Jesus to a watching world. That's the challenge that Paul has given to us. All right. I'm going to give us a few verses here. Uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, for we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The hand is not the foot. The eye is not the mouth. Each of you was created with spiritual gifts and abilities, and God's inviting you to use those for the kingdom of God. If you're gifted in building, then build for the kingdom somehow. If you're gifted in administration, begin to find ways to use that for the gospel of Christ. If you're gifted at teaching, then teach. If you're gifted at mentoring, then find a way to mentor other people around you. If you're like, I'm gifted in all those things, then just get off the sidelines and find one to start with. Jump into the picture, the mosaic of Christ. All right, now onto the more challenging part. Pursuing unity, not, not uniformity, is costly. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 15, I'll put this up here on the screen. He died, Jesus, for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. This is the good news of the gospel. If you're new to church, it's that God loves you and that he wants a relationship with you, and that God sent his son, Jesus, to be an atonement for the mistakes in our life that we might be made right with Jesus. And when we do that, it costs our life. And if you're new, I don't wanna to pretend to tell you it's gonna cost anything less, but I will, I will stand here and tell you it's the best cost of my life that I've ever paid is to give my life to following his so following Jesus is gonna cost you three things we'll end with. It's gonna cost you oftentimes our pride. It's gonna cost our pride. It says in 1 Corinthians 4, 12, Paul's, Paul's writing this letter. He's got sweat, maybe even tears coming down his face. He gets a little excited in the letter and he writes to the Corinthians. He goes, look, I get it. When we're reviled though, we're gonna bless. 
When we're persecuted, we'll endure. When we're slandered, we'll entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And Paul writes, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. It's gonna cost our pride. He says in verse, uh, chapter four, verse 20, 21, it's not on the screen, it says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish, he says, He asks them a question, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? It's gonna cost us pride, humility, moments where we apologize, where we confront people and say, for years I might've got this wrong or my approach might've been wrong. Can you forgive me? The second thing it's gonna cost us is hard conversations. Being people who pursue unity requires sharing truth with other people. And I believe that Paul is one of the the best examples of this in this letter because he does it with a sense of love and compassion. All throughout the letter, Paul is, is quick to minimize himself. He wants no personal gain through these hard conversations, but he wants the gain to be for them, their relationship with the Father and the watching world. I think that's one of the best postures that we can have when we approach people in hard conversations. And then number three, the third thing it's gonna cost us, and I'm sure there's many more, is our preferences. The mission should always come before our preferences. The mission that Jesus lays out for us to seek and save the lost, to help a watching world know the love and the mercy and the grace should always be the most important thing. Not the music was too loud, the fog machines went off too much, I was coughing the whole time. The mission of Jesus should always be more important than our personal preferences. And church, I think you do that so well. I, I, I honestly, I commend you for the way you do it. But I challenge you, let's get larger than Hills Church. The way that we interact with the watching world, the way that Hills Church is salt and light, how do we do that? I think one of the best examples of putting us at our preferences is the institution of marriage. Yesterday, I I married uh, Kevin and Janie Brumand. They're a part of our church. And uh, in our premarital counseling, I was talking to them about, hey, look, it's no longer you and I, it's now it's we as you come into this union. And the hope of scripture, the hope of God is that each of you come together as, as, as Christ followers is that now united, you would bring God more glory together than you would have apart separately. That's the purpose of marriage. And daily, it's gonna be an opportunity to die to yourself and your own preferences and to figure out how to love and serve the other person. Now, the reminder of how difficult marriage can be And the reminder of the the, the collapse of marriages throughout our culture is a reminder to us of how much we struggle with pursuing unity. Amen? Yeah, it's a struggle. And the quicker we own that is the quicker we can get on mission together. And I'll challenge you, some of you couples have lost sight of the mission for which God brought you together. I'll tell you this, a couple on mission together for the gospel is a happy, flourishing marriage. The big idea, the point of unity is to point to Jesus. And so where do we go from here? 
I'd say two things. Some of us have some identities in our life that maybe we need to ask God to deconstruct starting this morning. And maybe it began at a young age and you just need to invite the Lord to come into your life and to flip that upside down. And others of us, there's a cost that you need to become serious about pain for following Jesus. Maybe it's your pride that you have to lay down. Maybe it's the willingness to endure hard conversations or maybe it's some preferences in your life that you just need to not let sow seeds of bitterness. And church, good news is this. You'll experience more joy as you pursue unity than maybe you've never experienced before. You'll also become an incredible testimony to a watching world. I'll end with this story. Uh, four years ago, well, five years ago, we lived in the Bay Area, my wife and I, and then we spent 12 months overseas in Belgium at this international church serving there. 12 months in Belgium, uh, in Europe, and it's a large part EU kind of community. And we walk into this international church in the first week, and it's so clear as day that it's made up of 50 plus nationalities, people from around the world making up this international church. It's the most beautiful expression of unity that I've ever seen. As you walk in, there's every tribe and tongue represented. Every dress attire is represented in this church. We never once came remotely close to singing worship on key. Impossible goal. It was this beautiful expression. And eventually, my wife and I, we joined a small group. I'll never forget the first day we joined this small group. We walk in this little flat in this dark alleyway of Belgium. And uh, it, the first small group is going to break bread together, share a meal together. And I'm sitting down at this table and I'm looking around and uh, there's a, a couple from Greece, there's a man from France, there's two from Switzerland, there's Katie and I from California and all the stereotypes that come with that, we were just living them out. And we're sitting there and this guy named Bob is across the table from me, he goes, David, he calls me David, tonight you dine with a prince. I shrugged it off, okay. He goes, no David, tonight you dine with a prince and he nudges this African man sitting next to him, about 35 years old, really well-dressed, his wife, beautiful wife next to him. And I go, oh, he goes, David, he's that prince in his home country. I thought, okay, that's cute. Maybe it's like the town mayor kind of thing, a couple hundred people. I don't really know how that country runs their things. And I come to find out later on in small group, as we're sharing prayer requests and tears begin to come down his eyes, that his dad is the king of a territory of hundreds of thousands of people. And he's to be the successor as the prince. But he gave his life to the Lord. His dad's got multiple wives. He doesn't agree with lifestyle. And so he leaves. He relinquishes his, his identity as prince because he, had, he realizes that he could actually fight more for his country in the EU in politics than he could for the season on his home territory. And we're sitting there and I'm watching as this man is, is reconciling his man lay, mind, laying down identity for a calling to be a small piece of a puzzle in a foreign country because he loves the gospel and he loves his people. Now we're not a church of 50 nationalities, but we're certainly a, a church of more than 50 identities and things that we need to come together on for one identity, to portray one picture of Jesus Christ. And to do that, it's gonna require some of us laying down identities, laying down preconceived notions of, of who we find ourselves to be for the greater picture that God calls us to be. Amen, church? Let's pray together. And so Lord, I thank you for the moments that we get to share here together. And Lord, as we turn towards a time of a communion, Lord,
where we remember the gift of your son, Jesus, for our lives. God, I just wanna take a moment and speak to anyone in this room who maybe has never taken the step to place their life, their identity in the hands of Jesus. If that's you, just invite you to pray a prayer to begin a relationship with the Lord by saying, Lord, I thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. And today, Lord, I, I wanna take a step into the journey of being a follower of this Jesus. Thank you for the gift of your love and grace, forgiveness. And God, today, I wanna lay aside the things that I've tried to build my life on and I wanna fix my gaze on you, Lord. For the rest of us, may we own the piece of the puzzle that God's called us to be. And may we be a people who invite others to join that mosaic of the most beautiful reflection of our King. We pray this in your name, amen. Spend a few moments having communion in your seats. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.